You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to your dose of reality here at The Conservative Conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house, exhausted like a zombie, um, and pretty much almost like a masochist, watching 12 hours of that ridiculous Senate Judiciary confirmation hearing um, that lasted until, what, 10, 10.30 last night. And it's late Thursday today, and I'll tell you guys, I mean, most of you probably won't hear this till Friday, I have just had it. I just I just can't watch anymore. I, I, I did it because I feel there's a responsibility to give over to you guys the important points, meaning as much as the thing is enti- in, in, in its entirety is a charade and meaningless, either way he's going to be confirmed, either way the Democrats are going to be crazy, either way Republicans aren't going to articulate their views, either way it's going to be a cat and mouse game where he won't really say much of anything, um, not what so much what the Democrats want to hear and certainly not what, what we want to hear because he doesn't want to get himself into trouble to the extent he even believes in it. Um, but then, you know, at the end of the day, I believe there's important things to glean from here. So consider this almost a part two from Wednesday's show, episode 274. This is 275. And, you know, I promised that I would not only identify the source of judicial supremacy, define what exactly it is and isn't, but I would offer ultimately what my solution is. And we ran out of time. I want to do that today while also then going backwards again to explain before, you know, aside from my solution, why even without my solution, the current system of government that we adopted pursuant to that social contract that we signed and ratified in 1789, the construction of the, of the judiciary as, as agreed upon by both uh, parties and both legal movements is wrong. And I want to prove to you from the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I'm going to read a lot from Abraham Lincoln as well as Stephen Douglas a little bit later. Uh, for now, I want to flag for you, first off, my article on nine observations from the first day of the hearings. And really, you know, the second day is nothing nothing different. So go ahead and read that. I'm not going to go too much in depth on those nine observations, but the, the major takeaway is this. You lose ground forever when you cede ground. Once you agree to the premise of the left— on a certain issue, you can never take that back. You know, the American public, as much as half the people hate one side, half they hate the other side, but there's a certain aura of legitimacy if one party is pushing something. But if both parties agree to something, then it immediately marginalizes something, and it be and it's self-fulfilling when you use the parlance of a certain language to push a certain issue, and you can't use any other language or any other thought process or any other opinions, it becomes marginalized. And what I saw at that hearing, aside from the petulance of the Democrats and the leaking of stuff that they weren't able to release and all the drama, at the end of the day, we're doing this all to perpetuate a dangerous, tyrannical system of judiciary take all, that the judiciary is the final and exclusive say on every political issue. And it's not even like this guy's a Clarence Thomas. I mean, the guy said yesterday all all aliens have rights. The Supreme Court said that in the context of an illegal alien getting an abortion. He said an illegal alien has the right to break into this country and get an, an abortion. That's a very big problem. Meaning, look, I don't expect them, I don't expect someone to come before the committee, even if he is in line with Scalia and Thomas in terms of his boldness, to do the full Scalia and Thomas, what they did in their writings after they got on the court. But there's a certain amount of ground that I expect that we could say publicly. 
And, you know, how hard is it throughout an entire hearing that the guy is saying precedent, precedent, uh, precedent is so important for the Supreme Court, when they asked him about his Garza opinion in with the illegal alien getting an abortion, that look, that with all due respect, Senator, the same rationale that you're pushing Roe as settled law from an abortion standpoint, we have 120 years, really 200 years, where the court said it's the most settled, uninterrupted law built in the most foundational ancient principles of sovereignty that nobody could break into the country and assert jurisdiction and demand things. It's as if they're not here and there is no judicial review. That I mean, meaning if he could be hide behind, you know, settled law to kind of agree to liberal things, why can't he do that on conservative things and just say that's settled law? You're right. It's settled precedent that there's a right to an abortion, but it's also settled precedent that illegals are not here. So an illegal wouldn't have that right, just like even a legal immigrant doesn't have a real constitutional right to donate to a political campaign and to own a gun. So certainly an illegal. How hard is it for – but no. He explicitly said that he does not agree with Karen Henderson's dissent. And that's why he didn't sign on to it. Karen Henderson's dissent is the best opinion ever written on immigration over the past couple of years. And if you don't agree with that, we have a major problem here. We have stolen sovereignty. Especially after Gorsuch was bad on one facet of immigration, an important facet. So, um, but no one will focus on that. You know, it's funny. I, I try to alar- uh, you know, sound the alarm to some of my pro-sovereignty allies i'm like dude did you hear what kavanaugh said like we got a major problem and even then they're like oh dang you know yeah i I wanted to get some on the record quotes for for an article like that you know i I can't i can't you know it's hard enough to get anyone to kind of put pressure on a republican president president he's treated like god if you're working republican politics um Supreme Court nominees of a Republican president are like God. So you put the two together, no one's going to speak out. But it's like, we're suffering all this, all for what? And one other observation, just to tee up our, again, I want to speak more thematic. I want to speak more to history and our system of government rather than the specifics of the politics of the Kavanaugh nomination for this show. But to tee it up, um, John Cornyn, had conversations both yesterday and 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 on Thursday. And I, I give Corden credit. He he actually discussed like who's the final say. He kind of said that. But then both Kavanaugh and Cornyn proceeded to say again and again that the only way to get around a court ruling is to amend the Constitution. And you you guys know I have my book. I have my article, 10 Ways to Congress Could Check the Courts. I'm like, what planet do you live on? The, the leading legal scholars and political leaders on the right have adopted the position of the left. We're done. I mean, that's North Korea. I mean, if a court rules that a state must recognize a human lion and tiger as a marriage. Are you going to tell me the only way around that is to amend the Constitution and say, no, a marriage, states have the right to not recognize a lion, a tiger, and a human as a marriage. I mean, is it that cr- – are you kidding me? I feel like I'm living in a twilight zone. Nothing we discuss matters – until this issue is resolved. This is the most foundational constitutional crisis you could ever have. Now, like I said before, this wasn't such a big question until fairly recently. Who is the ultimate arbiter? Because fundamentally, we agreed on what the Constitution said. We disagreed on 
politics, I might want to do something, but I certainly don't believe it's mandated by the Constitution. Right now, we have a dynamic in this country where one side believes what's a federal right is federal power is a state power. It's a state power is a federal power. What's an unalienable right is racist. What's antithetical to an unalienable right is the fundamental right. Um, you know, what's in the Constitution is out. What's out is in. There's no way you could bridge that divide. The Democrats now believe not only are they extreme and radical in their policy political beliefs, but they believe that almost every one of those beliefs is mandated by the Constitution. And then they believe, and we agree to it evidently, that the judiciary is is the final and exclusive arbiter of constitutional interpretation. So that means we have no country left. That means there is literally nothing they could do They'll elicit blowback. And as we mentioned many times, that's not the case. And the first time this really came up in earnest was in the Civil War, was towards the Civil War, was with slavery. That was the really only – and that's why Lincoln and Douglas were the first to really address this head on, and I'm going to get to that. But what I'm telling you is the, the, the status quo, meaning before we get to a legislative change, Before we get to the exceptions and regulations clause, you don't need even jurisdiction stripping. They don't have – what people don't understand is courts adjudicate cases and controversies. If they render an opinion in that case that also looks like in order to give judgment to plaintiff A, they're trying to speak very boldly about a constitutional interpretation – that will broadly affect the body politic of the entire country, our sovereignty, our culture, our pol- everything we do, then that's where the other branches could say, well, it, dude, it's not self-executing on us. You want to give him judgment, that's fine, but we're not going to give it effect in the executive branch. We're not going to fund it in the legislative branch, and we're going to do everything we can in the legislative process to gum up the works to ensure that that doesn't become present even before we get to their direct taking away jurisdiction from the courts. And that's how it was designed to work. If other people don't like it, they'll go back to the courts. They'll render another opinion, be more emphatic about it. We'll see if the public agrees that it's a good opinion. It will kind of take root. If not, it won't. But you have to have a fight over it. That's a republic. And, and we proved, and I know I've gotten a lot of good feedback, and I, I appreciate it, um, how I gave a very novel historical proof that we didn't adopt this veto standard, that it's more of a murky kind of concurrent jurisdiction that they all share in their respective avenues to address the Constitution, albeit the courts have the least a- the smallest avenue. It's kind of the most dramatic avenue when it implicates a constitutional question, real or BS, but narrow it is and their ability to affect it and give the police powers to it. You know, so so again, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not even getting into an immoral listening to an immoral law and the whole philosophy behind that. You know, obviously if the court gives an immoral opinion Yeah, I agree that just it's no better than if Congress passes an immoral statute that we have to chop off everyone's head whose name is John Smith. No, we're all as a people going to fight back against that, not going to listen to it. But I'm not even talking about the civil disobedience or the not listening to a court. It's who says it's the other branches not listening to the court? It's the court not listening to the other branches. At the end of the day, everyone swears an oath to the Constitution. The Constitution is supreme. Now, the founders thought there might be some in-the-weeds disagreements, and you had some at the beginning, even before Marbury, where the courts kind of implicated a certain constitutional right, kind of whatever you want to call it, judicial review, they engaged in it. It's before Marbury. You know, John Marshall didn't invent that. It was the original justices like Ellsworth and, and Patterson that were on the court before him. 
And and yes, there were the anti-federalists and also, you know, Jefferson that didn't like where they thought this was headed, that it could lead into them kind of being the final say. You know, likely they were the other branches were deferential, not because it had to be that way, like, look. You know, most cases, and and we gave a whole lecture on Marbury versus Madison. It was so in the weeds. It wasn't like marriage redefined, sexuality redefined, borders redefined, citizenship redefined. Um, you know, f- you have a right to a hundred days of early voting. I mean, there were you didn't have this. So even to the extent it was a nerdy kind of in the weeds legal disagreement, it was like yeah, the, these guys, especially at the time of the founding, they were the. They understood law. They understood the Constitution. I trust what they're saying. So they kind of didn't gum up the works. And, you know, it really wasn't until the Indian removals and the National Bank under Jackson that it became an issue of, you know, who was the final say. And then, you know, really in earnest, it wasn't until um, 1857 with Dred Scott. Because we all swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, all of us. The judicial branch, but certainly the greater legislative and executive branches, and, 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 in the, and the states as well. They swear an oath to the Constitution. It wasn't ambiguous what the hell the Constitution was. But now we're questioning the basic facts of life, Y and X chromosomes. So yeah, I mean, we have a basic disagreement between night and day. You know, the, the the left believes that there's a religious liberty right to immigrate, but an American citizen doesn't have a religious liberty right to just mind his own business and not be forced to violate his conscience. The left believes positive privileges are fundamental negative unalienable rights, while fundamental negative unalienable rights are not rights. I mean – so, yeah, I mean, so now we have a major problem that everything is in a disagreement. Everything is a constitutional question. Everything's a federal constitutional question. So if you're going to say the federal judiciary is the final say, we have no country left. This is an argument we should all appreciate, whether you're left or right. Again, I would argue, obviously, it benefits the left more. But what I'm trying to say is that given that, that – what I'm trying to say is that we live – in a unique time with a unique opportunity where even though you and I both know that Trump's four years in office, even if it's eight years, not just with the Supreme court, but the lower court nominees for all the reasons we've given structurally precedents, the nature of Republican judicial picks, the type of vacancies we're filling and not filling on the various circuits and the balance of power on the circuits we're not really changing the courts, and actually they're getting worse because of the boldness of the left. They're getting worse. Here and there, we're going to benefit in some prominent cases from judicial supremacy, but by and large, it's a 95-5 net loser proposition for our side. But nonetheless, most people don't realize what I realize. They don't see it the way I do, and everyone else in the political system, including the Democrats, are have a maniacal fear of judicial tyranny from the right. You know, tr- oh, Trump, all these lower court nominees, and, you know, Grassley just said it at the committee. He was, like, rubbing it in. Ha we've confirmed another 13 judicial picks plus the Supreme Court picks. Now's the time to go to the Democrats and say, look, let's forget about all the things we hate. Destroyed our civilization. You're worried about things like Citizens United. Okay, I mean, you're, you're bothered by the fact that you passed a law and five justices could just say, dude, you know, donating to campaigns is freedom of speech. And it's beyond regulation from Congress. And I picked that because I understand the Democrats a little bit more than any other issue. In other words, I ultimately agree with the decision. I ultimately agree it is part of the First Amendment. And I could, I could explain that and defend that. But it's not as unambiguous in the Constitution as their gripes about Heller, because that's that's just ridiculous. Anyone who understands the text and the history behind not just the Second Amendment, but what was viewed as an unalienable right that didn't even need to be enshrined into a federal Constitution shall not be infringed. 
that's obvious. But you guys are scared of Citizens United for our liberal listeners here. Let's let's shake hands on this. Let's end judicial supremacy on a federal level. My solution is you don't need a constitutional amendment. That requires two-thirds from majorities in both houses and then the states. That will never happen in any direction. We've reached the point in our history, I think any political scientist on any side of any persuasion will agree, we will never do that again with the nature of our country, at least not for generations, the way our country is today. Nobody could amass that much power because of the polarization. It's just not going to happen. Um, It just won't. So don't tell me, oh, you could fight back. You could have constitutional amendment. Well, what do you do if the Supreme Court or the lower courts amend the Constitution themselves? Who says that's valid? Why do I need to amend the Constitution? So that's never going to happen. I'm here to tell you, with a simple passage of statutes, I mean, and I know, you know, those of you who know me well, and have followed my book and my writings well, understand that, you know, this is obvious. Article 3, Section 2, the federal courts have no jurisdiction but what Congress grants them. None of these issues. Take it away. Let's shake hands and take away 10 to 15 of the most political issues of our time, make it even, and that's it. And that's it. You know, Ted Cruz noted in the hearing that Merrick Garland and Kavanaugh, sitting on the same circuit, agreed over 90% of the time in their rulings. I want to be clear, even though I'm kind of the chief antagonist of the federal judiciary in the entire country, probably. I'm only militating against a very narrow sliver of what they've come to do. 90% of the time, our court system in America is excellent. It works. On the civil criminal cases, for the most part, I mean, I think there is a problem with being too pro-criminal in general, but there is an appropriate time, given that, depending on the facts of the case, our system works. There's a need for it. There's a very important role for the courts. When I talk about them being weak and nothing, I mean in affecting political and social change in this country. But to adjudicate cases and controversies under the law, that is their job, that they didn't want the legislature to be the same people adjudicating Smith v. Jones, you go ahead and do it. And when it doesn't implicate political issues, you see they, they agree, and Sotomayor and Kagan and Ginsburg sound very sane. But once you put politics in it, not surprisingly, the same political divide we have in the legislature we have there, except there you're telling me it's unalterable, it's unelectable, it's life tenure, there's nothing you can do about it. So we may as well have the fight in the political realm. You know, just a detour here. One of the things I keep hearing at this hearing, and one of the observations I made in my article, is that everyone's worried about the power of the executive. So Democrats are worried about specifically Trump's power now that he's president, and Republicans are worried about the administrative state the deep state, what's become the fourth branch of government, which shouldn't be. And, and there's valid concerns in the abstract. But I laugh. I laugh. There was someone, I can't remember which Democrat it was, that said to Kavanaugh, so you mean the president's the final word? And I was laughing. Dude, A, he's only there for four years. B, you have the power of the purse. You have the power to legislate. You could abolish offices. You could cut the funding for the executive office of the presidency. You could make his life miserable in 50 million ways. And, of course, you could impeach him. And then he stands for election, and then he's gone. Yet, and everyone's pulling their hair out. The deep state. I, I agree that with the Federalist Society and these guys uh, about the administrative state. But it's like 
in, in the list of priorities compared to the executive power abuse compared to the judicial abuse it, it, it is is laughable because even if they're you know abusing statute okay so you could pass another statute that's hard but it's not impossible but yet when the unelected courts that are there for life establish particularly a progressive precedent it's never, it, that's it you're done. They're telling us, and again, it's not true, as we said, but in their view, the only way around that is to amend the Constitution. So that's a bigger issue we need to deal with, and yet no one's dealing with it. And again, I just want to reiterate, it's an interesting factoid. If you look at constitutional amendments in our history, there's been very few, you know, the Bill of Rights, like, obviously there's been 27 amendments, but, you know, the first um, 10 are are irrelevant because that was really just an extension of the Constitution. It was a promise. It was a grand bargain, and they did immediately. So, you know, let's just say there's there's um, 17 of them. And, you know, they were kind of dispersed throughout our history. You know, the obviously you had the ones at the beginning. The 11th and, and 12th were, were, you know, towards the beginning, um, making states immune from suits from out-of-state citizens and foreigners not living within the states. The sovereign immunity of the 11th Amendment was 1795. You had an 1804 um, in response to the you know 1800 election, uh, revising the presidential election procedures, having the president and vice president elected um, together on the same ticket as opposed to being runner-up. Um, but you'll notice there's a big gap from 1803 until after the Civil War, there were no amendments because the country was terribly polarized. There was no way anyone was ever going to agree to the other side because of the slavery issue, on any, even on any other issue. That's the type of country we're living in now. Um, you know, And then it resumed, obviously, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th right after the Civil War. And then, um, you know, obviously, in the Progressive Era with the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th Amendments, and then, you know, you get into the stuff as a result of FDR, 20th and 21st. And then, again, you had in the 40s, um, you know, the term limits uh, on, on the president, the 22nd, obviously, in response to FDR. And, you know, and then really, you know, the 27th Amendment is complicated. What I'm not going to get into it. It really began in 1789. It was, you know, ratified in 1992, but that's that's complicated. You know, essentially, we stopped doing it in 1971 in response with the where you had the Vietnam War with the 18 year olds dying. So, you know, let's lower the voting age from 21 to 18. And that was, you know, 47 years ago. We're not having constitutional amendments. We're just not. I'm sorry. Um, certainly not through the traditional process of you know Congress initiating it. Just not going to happen. Not going to happen. So anyway, my plan would be obviously jurisdiction stripping. It's plain in sight. It's amazing how such bullcrap is put into the Constitution, but something that is so unambiguous that people like Ellsworth and Sherman and, and John Marshall, the people that wrote and were involved in a strong judiciary, said that there is no force for the judiciary to act without jurisdiction from Congress. Article 3, Section 2 is straight up there. I go through, I have chapter nine in my book because the whole history behind it. Um, and we won't use it. We won't talk about it. It amazes me. It amazes me. Clarence Thomas just talked about it categorically in a In the Weeds case, Patrick v. Zink, uh, this past term. No one will entertain it. As Thomas says, they have the power to control the jurisdiction of the courts the same way they have the power to mint coins, measurements, you know, declare war, post offices. It, it's, it's part of the enumerated it, – it's, just, it's among the enumerated powers establishing the courts. But what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is 
two nuances here. A, it's not going to be partisan. Number one, the same way we're going to take marriage, religious liberty, abortion, um, election law, redistricting, things like that out of the courts, out of the federal courts, we would take you know, things like Obamacare, things like Janus, you know, labor union dues, and things like Citizens United, and frankly, guns. I mean, I, it, it would be worth it for our side. You'd be stupid not to take it on net. Um, take it out of the federal courts and say, let's shake on it, Democrats. If you want to take politics out of the confirmation process, take politics out of the courts once and for all. Now, again, to be clear, I like the system of government we adopted, which is not so black and white. It's that the courts in a legitimate case could entertain it, but just that it wouldn't be regarded as God's word if you're trying to create a broad precedent off that case and the other branches can and should push back if they believe what you're saying is unconstitutional and they must adhere to their oath of the Constitution. But because we're clearly not a mature enough society to understand that and deal with that, I think we have to just remedy and just take away judicial review rather than just explaining how judicial review is not judicial supremacy and, and how it could work harmoniously. We just take it away. Take it away. Don't get me wrong. I, I believe there is a right place, not as the final role, but as the one avenue when the other branches are being tyrannical and are taking away legitimate rights to go to it before a court. But to me, this is the only way to have a grand bargain that would make a lot of sense to the people. Keep politics in the political branches. Let's shake on it. Especially now, Democrats, that you're scared of what you see, of what you wrongly, in my view, fear as the coming of, you know, conservative of a, of a conservative judiciary. But that's the first nuance. It would be bipartisan. It would be even. But there's a second nuance that makes it even better. I'm not saying that. Oh, so then now it's all up to Congress and state legislatures, and there's no role of a judiciary. People forget that there's something called state courts. It's time to make state judiciaries great again. And this is the article I wrote a couple days ago. Want to solve the SCOTUS impasse? Make state courts great again. What would happen if you take away the jurisdiction over these issues from the courts? You'll say, well, well Daniel, but there is a legitimate, you know, what about the legitimate cases where there are legitimate rights, you know, don't you need a court? They're state courts. Of course, you would still have the prerogative in your state to go in front of your state court if it's a real right, if it's a BS right you want to attempt to assert, and you could assert it in front of that state judge. District and then appeals, and they have a state Supreme Court, which will be the final say. To me, there even even if so, it's not just legislatures, you know, controlling everything. You know, all the popular elected. You do have courts involved. Will still be involved in constitutional construction. I find it amazing how you know opponents of a robust judicial review and even judicial supremacy. They cite, oh, yeah, it's the Constitution. The federal courts have this power. Supreme Court is the power, power final law of the land. They um, wrongly invoke the supremacy clause to justify that. Say, oh, it's the law of the land, the law of the land, right? In Article 6, it's the law of the land. And obviously anyone with a half a brain understands that, you know, <laughs> um, the Article 6 Supremacy Clause, it meant the United States Constitution is supreme 
over the state constitution when it comes into conflict. It didn't mean the courts. It meant the constitution. Everyone's saying the constitution means the courts, means the Supreme Court. No, it's, it's, not, it's not true. It's self-fulfilling. It's, it's just a redundant manifestation of their error of reading other parts of Article 3, so they just read that into Article 6 in the Supremacy Clause. Um, but, you know, when it says that this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made pursuance thereof, and all treaties made on which shall be made under the authority of the United States, notice courts don't make treaties, it's referring to the political branches who make law, courts don't make law, quote, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Notice that, ironically, the state judges are the ones that are vested with interpreting the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> more than the federal judges. Actually, that it says straight out in the Constitution. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Daniel, state judges are a-holes too. There's a lot of problems with them too. Aren't we still going to have judicial supremacy? There's three reasons why this is vastly superior to the status quo. When I say the status quo, I don't mean the government we adopted, but what's the go- I mean the system of the ju- federal judiciary and federal judicial supremacism that we erroneously, erroneously practice. So, you know, there's three reasons why it's better. Number one, at least if they give a crappy opinion and they say a marriage is not a marriage, um, you know, uh, a man's a woman, it's not binding in 51 states. Everywhere, you know, um, you know, I mentioned Puerto Rico there, whatever, but um, but uh, you know, the territories too. But it, well, let's just say fifty states. Um, forget about the territories, but the entire theme, both from the right and left, you, this is the most solemn vote I'm ever going to take. Says Sydney, says says the Senator Blumenthal. There's no more important vote I'm going to make. And and again, I laugh. They do this while they're blowing through a budget bill. The power of the purse, they could solve everything. They could refuse to give force to so many of these Supreme Court opinions, executive violations you don't, policies you don't like, whatever it is. The veto power of the president and the power of the purse of Congress is everything. And yet Trump ignores his veto pen. Congress ignores the power of the purse. And both of them say the most important thing I'm ever going to do is to nominate in Trump's case and confirm in the Senate's case a Supreme Court justice. And you're going to affect civilization for for a generation. That's what they say. Everyone agrees. And they're all wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And indeed, if you understood the current construct, it isn't that way. But nonetheless, at least under my remedy, if a judge in California wants to say everyone has to allow men in female bathrooms – it doesn't apply in all states. Or from the left's perspective, if a judge in Texas says that, you know, you unions cannot force people to uh, unionize, to, 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 to for, take out of their salary uh, contributions to the union, that's limited to Texas. And we could debate it. It's number number one. It's limited in impact. Jeffrey Sutton, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and and Kavanaugh actually mentioned him, but not in this context. He should have used it for this context. He has a he has a book called Fifty One Imperfect Solutions, where he means fifty plus one, fifty state constitutions and one federal one. But I'm taking his idea a step further and saying even the federal constitution. Let's leave it to the states. At least on most issues. Immigration, you're going to have to deal with a different way because you can't have states doing that. You know, there's footnotes we could talk about as we build this later on. But before we get to the other two factors, you know, the first being that, it, you know, it's only one state. And, and this is what federalism is. You can at least move somewhere. It's the problem now is 
that because of the federal government's power and then the Supreme Court's power, I can't move anywhere and get away from it. That was the whole idea. You can move. But I want to tell you that I'm not making up some radical thing. This was essentially what was done in most of our history when, as I noted, the federal courts really weren't engaging in robust, even judicial review. It was the state courts that had the final say. John Marshall in the 1788 Virginia Ratifying Convention, John Marshall, yes, that John Marshall, promised that the federal judiciary would not be vested with the power to overturn state laws. It wasn't until 1875 that Congress gave authority over all constitutional questions to federal courts. It was very narrow, the type of cases, and it was only in one direction. Meaning, most constitutional questions were decided by state courts. Like I'm saying, it's not just that Congress has the right to strip jurisdiction. You only have the jurisdiction by, by default if Congress gives it to you, and Congress didn't give it to them in most cases till 1875. They didn't do it. And then the notion that the Supreme Court directly takes from a state Supreme Court and appeals to overturn them wasn't until 1914. And that was when litigation implicating a federal right was based on real rights, not BS rights. There's an even more compelling case now for Congress to take the power back, given that all these federal constitutional cases are built on phony rights. Most of them are. Meaning what I'm trying to tell you is I'm not reinventing the wheel here. This is essentially how it was for the first half of our, our, our history. It really was. The Judiciary Act of 1789 limited the Supreme Court's jurisdiction to state cases that ruled against a federal right. But if they're upholding it, it was only in one direction. If they're upholding it, there was no jurisdiction to go the other way. That's how it was. It was one directional. Now, again, this was in the twilight of Reconstruction era when you know, Congress was weakening the power of the states. It was all that was, you know, had to do with slavery and, and the Civil War and, you know, Jim Crow and, you know, things like that, that, that. That's really how a lot of this was borne out, and that's how the left is able to exploit. And that's really how, I mean, again, Cooper v. Aaron, it, all these cases came pretty much from born out of, civil rights and that that's the problem that's how the left has been so successful and no one wants to challenge it because they don't want to be seen oh you're against brown v board of education but it's like no we're not against the policy we're against what you did with the power of the courts and now you're applying that to anything and everything so you know that's the reality this was our history i'm telling you it's a good idea number one because um, it's just limited to one state. It gives time for the other states to mobilize. So it's more democratic to begin with, even if you keep it within the courts. Number two, most state judges are elected or at least stand for retention ballot. All different mixes and all different types. Initially appointed, stands for election, you know, comes, you know, all sorts of things. But most of them are not like the federal courts. So you have that thing, at least if we're going to have the political decisions decided by them, you know, we're going to at least make them elected. Now, a lot of the people say that about the federal courts, but again, that will require constitutional amendment to change it for the federal courts. Here, you could just merely, by statute, devolve to the states, and then, boom, ready-made, the states, are re their judges are already elected. That's how you solve that. That's the genius of this. And number three... They're closer to the people and the state legislatures. In other words, if, if you had to make a comparison, you know, this is like an SAT, you know, uh, comparison. Um, 
state courts are not to state legislatures what federal courts are to federal to, to Congress. Meaning just the mystique of a federal court is it, they're so powerful and regarded with such esteem that Congress, even though they have the power, we see they don't exercise it. They don't impeach. They don't go after them. They don't let the states pursuant to their varying constitutions. They have different rules. Let the, let them do it. And what's my proof? West Virginia impeached their entire Supreme Court. The federal legislature would never do that to the to, to even a district judge on a federal level. You see, that's the lesson from West Virginia. It's so much easier to rein in judicial supremacy once you get it on a state level. Meaning, so it's not just that you limit the impact of bad judicial opinions to one state, but even within that state, there's more recourse because a they're elected, and b you could the state legislature. It's more likely you'll be able to create a movement to go after them. You also have referendums to change the constitution that are more common in state constitutions and are more likely to succeed than on a federal level. Happens all the time. Meaning a lot of states do give tremendous power to state courts and don't really have jurisdiction stripping equivalent type of things depending on the state. I'm, I'm not really an expert in state constitutions, but you could, you could change that. And it's a lot easier than changing the federal constitution. Think of the beauty it would, of... of localism, of grassroots, for both sides. Nothing I'm saying is political. I mean, partisan. Um, for our liberals in the audience, write me if you, what, you know, what your thoughts on this, because I don't think any of us should disagree on this. It, it would be a beautiful, just patriotic expression of civics, where rather than state judges dealing with boring real estate cases that no one but the stakeholders deal with so no one even knows their like circuit judge this and like i don't know the maryland guys and whatever but if you know they're going to decide all the societal political issues you better believe that it would make state judicial elections great again and it would make state legislative elections great again it would make gubernatorial elections see a lot of people are telling me like um Particularly, and and you know who you are. You're you're an avid listener, and I I, I really appreciate it. And I learn a tremendous amount from you. Um, I'm referring to a friend of mine um, who is a, a a law clerk on on a federal court now, and he knows who he is. Uh, so shout out to you anonymously. He he brought up a very good point that you know like, dude. I mean, these guys. It's, it's there's so much corruption and uh, on a state level, but but that's because there's no yeah. I mean, because people view it as meaningless. But I'm dynamically looking at how it would be if we did enact my change. I, I don't think it would remain that way. I think the people would be all over this if that's where it all matters. We're tearing each other apart. You look at the hearings. There's no daylight between anyone. I mean, this is ultimately what needs to happen. Devolving to the state's. And I think it would lead just so many other spheres of policy to be developed to the states, and that would be a good thing. I've gone a lot longer than I wanted to on this, but I promised to get to Lincoln Douglas. Okay, so we all know the details of the Dred Scott case just real briefly without getting into the complications of all the multiple times Dred Scott was Sold from different owners, free states, slave states. Basically, after a number of years, he was owned by a guy named John Sanford, um, and it was in a free, non, non-slave state. And the court made very clear, opinion written by Roger Taney. You know, I live here in Baltimore where it's a lot of stuff uh, – named after him. I'm actually uh, not too far away from a street named Taney. Um, there's also Tawny Town in Carroll County, which is named after him. So anyway, he uh, he wrote an opinion saying that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Okay, the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. The notion that you could ban slavery in the territories that the federal government, that Congress could pass, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, um, basically north of Missouri, any territory north of Missouri 
they said would come in as a free state, they can't do that, right? They, they cannot do that because ultimately black human beings in this country are property. So therefore you're infringing upon the property rights of those living in those territories. Okay, that's what the Dred Scott case said. So it wasn't, you know, you know, obviously you had the case or controversy. Okay, John Sanford, you have the right to have your, you know, property returned to you in their view. But they were clearly making a pronouncement, and they did make the pronouncement that the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional. Um, slavery is the law of the land everywhere. Gay marriage is the law of the land. Slavery is the law of the land everywhere. Um, you cannot uh, decide to make, make such a de determination. So what was interesting is, you know, a year later, you know, right after that, you had Abraham Lincoln challenging Dred, uh, not Dred Scott, Stephen Douglas, the incumbent senator from Illinois, to be the next senator from Illinois. And again, the funny thing is back then, remember, it was the state legislature that would choose, but nonetheless, they had a robust campaign in a series of seven public debates with really ten to 20,000 people turned out for each one because that influenced the state legislative elections. It's very amazing, just, just as, a, as a side note, to watch how Senate elections worked before the 17th Amendment. So anyway, uh, Douglas was a leader of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which vitiated the Missouri Compromise. They, that he was for what he called popular sovereignty. That no, you know, the federal government shouldn't get to say that anywhere above this line, it has to be a free state. Let the let the people determine that. Okay, let the people determine it. And they started to have a series of debates in the late summer, fall, around this time of year in 1858. And obviously, ultimately, we know that Lincoln lost the election. <clears throat> These debates are amazing. You should all read them. Just, I mean, just the stuff you could learn no matter what, aside from the issue of the judiciary is amazing. But the issue of the judiciary was really one of the central, if not the central issue, along with whether the Declaration of Independence applied to all human beings, um, whether slavery, slavery was immoral, but whether the Supreme Court is the law of the land. Now, throughout, I'm going to read to you, I'm going to spend a lot of time reading quotes. I'm just going to read them verbatim because I think they're powerful enough. But rather than, I mean, each debate is very long, so I wanted to pick out quotes for you so you could, you know, glean what they felt directly related to this. And really Douglas, who, you know, had much better arguments than the liberals of today, uh, you know, he still had kind of foolish and conflicting arguments that Lincoln called him out on. And he couldn't defend them, and basically he just hid behind Dred Scott. Well, the Supreme Court said, the Supreme Court said. And Lincoln pointed out his hypocrisy all the while that, wait a minute, you know very well, Douglas, that the Supreme Court just said, meaning it's not just that they're just referring to the federal government can't do it. See, Douglas was trying to parse out this thing. Well, the federal government can't do it, but the you know territories themselves, if they want, they could they could decide. But the point Lincoln was kept telling him is if you're gonna pull off this crap that the Supreme Court is the law of the land and it's universally binding on everyone aside from that case and, and all the politicians and you can't fight back against it and oppose it, then it doesn't make any sense because what they were saying is that slaves are property and this is property rights and it's the Constitution. So it doesn't matter if a state does it or Congress does it. They're essentially saying slavery is the law of the land everywhere. It can't be. Even if the people would vote, that would be the next opinion of the court. And what are you going to do then? You're saying let the people decide. But if you're saying the, the judicial supremacy, they've already kind of this hinted to that. Notice that's an argument I make a lot, very often. I'm like, dude, like the, the court's already 
kind of said this, and if you don't push back now, they're going to apply it. And I was like, no, 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 they're not going to go that far. Well, no, they will. And once they do, you're telling me there's no way to stop it. And this was the debate. And the truth be told, no one really believed the way Douglas did. And as Lincoln pointed out many times in the debate, Douglas himself throughout the career, his own career would have mocked judicial supremacy. But nonetheless, he hid behind it to push slavery. It's a law of the land. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. I want to read you quotes that will have tremendous bearing on the time we live in. So, you know, again, just to, to understand, before he was in Congress and the Senate, Stephen Douglas was a Supreme Court justice in the Illinois Supreme Court. So just for reference, he's going to be called judge a lot. I'm going to read you, read you a lot of quotes here. This is from Lincoln in the first debate in Ottawa, Illinois, in the far north, August 21st, 1858. Here's the quote. This man, meaning Douglas, <clears throat> sticks to a decision which forbids the people of a territory from excluding slavery. And he does, he does so not because he says it is right in itself, he does not give any opinion on that, but because it has been decided by the court. And being decided by court, he is, and you are, bound to take it in your political action as law. Not that he judges at all of its merits, but because the decision of the court is to him a, quote, thus says the Lord. And then people started applauding according to the transcript. He places it on that ground alone, and you will bear in mind that thus committing himself unreservedly to this decision commits him to the next decision just as firmly as to this. He did not commit himself on account of merit or demerit of the decision, but it is a thus says the Lord. The next decision as much as this will be a thus says the Lord. There is nothing that can divert or turn him away from this decision. It is nothing that I point out to him that his great prototype, General Jackson, right, the president, did not believe in the binding force of decisions. It is nothing to him that Jefferson did, did not so believe. I have said that I have often heard him approve of, of Jackson's course in disregarding the decision of the Supreme Court pronouncing a national bank constitutional. He says, I did not hear him say so. He denies the accuracy of my recollection. I say he ought to know better than I but I will make no question about this thing, though it still seems to me that I heard him say it 20 times. Applause and laughter. <clears throat> I will tell him, though, that he now claims to stand on the Cincinnati platform, which affirms that Congress cannot charter a, a national bank in the teeth of that old standing decision that Congress can chart a bank. Loud applause. And I remind him of another piece of history on the question of respect for judicial decisions. And it is a piece of Illinois history belonging to a time when the large party to which J Judge Douglas belonged were displeased with the decision of the Supreme Court of Illinois because they had decided that a governor could not remove a secretary of state. You will find the whole story at Ford's History of Illinois, and I know that Judge Douglas will not deny that he was then in favor of overslaying the decision by the mode of adding five new judges so as to vote down the four old ones. Not only so, but it ended in the judges sitting down on that very bench as one of the five new judges to break down the four-old guard. Cheers and laughter. It was in this way precisely that he got his title of judge. Now when the judge tells me, notice how he's mocking him, now when the judge, he doesn't call him senator, judge tells me that men appointed conditionally to sit as members of a court will have to be <clears throat> cataged beforehand upon some subject, I say, you know, judge, you have tried it. Laughter. When he says, a court of this kind will lose the confidence of all men, will be prostituted and disgraced by such a proceeding, I say, you know best, judge, you have been through the mill. But I cannot shake Judge Douglas's teeth loose from the Dred Scott decision, like some obstinate animal that will hang on when he has once got his teeth fixed. You may cut off a leg, or you may tear away an arm. Still, still, he will not relax his hold. And so I may point out to the judge and say that he is bespattered all over 
from the beginning of his political life to the present time with attacks upon judicial decisions. I may cut off limb after limb of his public record and strive to wretch him from a single dictum of the court, yet I cannot divert him from it. He hangs to the last to the Dred Scott decision. Loud cheers. These things show... There is a purpose strong as death and eternity for which he adheres to this decision and for which he will adhere to all other decisions of the same court. End quote. First debate. Notice how he mocks. No, notice how you could apply that nowadays. There's no merit, no reason. It makes no sense. It's tyrannical. But they will just, the court says, the court said, the court said. And, and you can't have a debate anymore. So he rejected that framework. Now, let me read you some more quotes. Second debate, Freeport, Illinois, August 27th, 1858. A Douglas quote. This is Douglas. He makes war. He's referring to Lincoln. He makes war on the decision of the Supreme Court. In the case known as the Dred Scott case, I wish to say to you, fellow citizens, that I have no war to make on that decision or any other ever rendered by the Supreme Court. I am content to take that decision as it stands, delivered by the highest judicial tribunal on earth, a tribunal established by the Constitution of the United States for that purpose, and hence that decision becomes the law of the land, binding on you, on me, and on every good citizen, whether we like it or not. Hence, I do not choose to go into an argument to prove before the audience whether or not Chief Justice Taney understood the law better than Abraham Lincoln. End quote. Okay, so this is the legacy. Whenever you hear these schmucks talking about law of the land, that is the legacy of Dred Scott and Stephen Douglas. Abraham Lincoln opposed it. Let, let's uh, go to some more. Fifth debate in Galesburg, Illinois, moving farther south, October 7th, 1858. This is from Abraham Lincoln. Now, in the very devoted adherence to this decision— in opposition to all the great political leaders whom he has recognized as leaders, in opposition to his former self in history, there is something very marked. And the manner in which he adheres to it, not as being right upon its merits as he conceives, because he did not discuss that at all, but as being absolutely obligatory upon everyone simply because of the source from whence it comes, as that which no man can gainsay, whatever it may be, this is another market feature of his adherence to that decision. It marks it, it, it marks it in this respect that it commits him to the next decision whenever it comes as being obligatory on this one, since he does not investigate it and won't inquire whether the opinion is right or wrong. So he takes the next one without inquiring whether it is right or wrong. He teaches men this doctrine and in so doing, prepares the public mind to take the next decision when it comes without inquiry. In this, I think I argue fairly that Judge Douglas is more ingeniously and powerfully preparing the public mind to take that decision when it comes, and not only so, but he is doing it in various other ways. End quote. There's a lot of profundity in that. They were living in a time, a time analogous to our time, I would argue between Windsor and Obergefell with marriage. It's the exact same thing. No, no, no. All they're doing is just saying the federal government can't define marriage, but states could do whatever they want. And we were like, dude, that's screwy. And if you're going to tell me that's the law of the land, then that means if they say even states can't define marriage, the next step, that'll be the law of the land too, right? Oh, no, they're not going to do that. Or let's take it the next step. So Obergefell happened, gay marriage is the law of the land. No, 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 but they're not going to say that if you're a religious individual with your private property, you have to make the gay. No, no, we just want our gay marriage, but no. And we're like, well, what do you mean? Kennedy said that there's a right to dignity, and he hinted to it in that opinion. And if you're going to tell me it's the law of the land, that will come in a few years. What are you going to do about it? It's the same thing here. Lincoln was telling Douglas, wait a minute. So you're telling me they could declare Congress can't bar slavery in the territories. Oh, but don't worry. The people of the territory themselves could have a vote and bar it if they want to. Popular sovereignty. Dude, there is no sovereignty. It's stolen sovereignty because the same court that said there's an unalienable right to property to own slaves. So that precludes the state from doing it too. And you'll, you're going to get that opinion the minute you hold your vote. So stop lying to us. It's amazing 
the profundity of that and how it applies to everything we're dealing with now. They and, and then the other point Lincoln was making that it acclimates the public mind. Once you say it's the law of the land, law of the land. So, yeah, is the public ready to say a lion and a tiger and a human being is a marriage? No, not politically. But once you say that the courts are the law of the land and then, and then that drives public opinion, then there is no end to it. And this is what no one could answer. One member did kind of bring this up to Kavanaugh. Like, I, I think uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, good guy. He's funny. He was like, so, so you mean to tell me so, – so they could just – unenumerated rights. They could just create a, a right. Five people could do it, and there's – it's completely unmoored even when it's not in the text of the Constitution, and it's just amend the Constitution. And Kavanaugh was kind of like, yeah, you know, there's a process for doing it. There's a litmus test they have to go through. But – but here's the deal. You know, Kavanaugh talked a lot about Glucksburg, 1996 case where Rehnquist laid out a standard for creating a new right, that it has to be deeply rooted in history and tradition. Dude, all the rights that they're creating now are antithetical. Say what you want about gay marriage. But you cannot say that it's deeply rooted in history and tradition. It's antithetical. I mean – they downright criminalize the behavior for most of our country, much less to recognize it and give it positive benefits as a marriage, much less precluding a state from defining marriage as, as it always was. There's no way. I mean, y- you could say politically you want to do it, so vote in the legislature and do it, but there's no way you could say that's in the Constitution. Yet they do it anyway. Meaning, what if they now issue an opinion and say it's in the Constitution's law of the land, even though it's not deeply rooted in history and tradition? This is the problem if you're going to crown one branch and the most unelectable and immutable branch, the law of the land. This is amazing stuff you're not going to hear elsewhere. 